the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Major General Louis McKenzie, UECM, CMM, MSC, Order of Ontario, CD, former commander of Land Force Central Area. So I'm told, report to Satis Nambiar. Satis, God bless him, called me and said, you've got to come to me for consultation in Zagreb. And I said, do I have to bring all my kit? And he said, yes, I'm afraid so. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. This is the last of my episodes that I've recorded in the month of September 2014. I'm slowly getting caught up. Today it's the eve of Remembrance Day. It's November 10th, 2014, and I'll be editing and posting the episodes that I've recorded in October and November as the weeks play out. Today's guest is Major General Lewis McKenzie, and during the interview, he's going to talk about a foundation called the Never Forgotten National Memorial Foundation. It's very fitting to speak about this on the eve of Remembrance Day, and the objective of this foundation is to erect a statue of Mother Canada, essentially a statue reflecting those on the Vimy Memorial, to honor our fallen in all engagements overseas, specifically those that are buried in our 2,500 Commonwealth war graves in 74 countries, those that were buried at sea, and those that we will never find. The monument will be placed along the Cabot Trail, in Nova Scotia on Cape Breton Island and the monument or the statue of the monument will face east with her arms open to embrace all of our fallen. The target date for opening or dedicating this memorial is in 2017 and they need to raise the funds in order to have this monument put into place. Here we are in 2014 at the end of 2014 so we do have a couple of years to raise some funds and raise some awareness about this project. There is a link on the Never Forgotten National Memorial's website. It's www.nfm.ca. And Major General Lewis McKenzie is one of the project leaders on this memorial. It was interesting contacting Major General Lewis McKenzie about being a guest on the Canadian Military History Podcast. It was interesting because he kept replying to me on his emails, Call me Lou. I'm retired now. So it was a little bit different for a Chief Warrant Officer to start addressing a retired Major General by first name, but I guess I got used to it. There aren't too many Canadian Forces Generals that have grabbed the media's attention as much as Major General Lewis McKenzie has. We can think of some others, but that's not their episode. He's especially well known for his actions in the former Yugoslavia, and he goes on to speak about that. Here's my interview with Major General Lewis McKenzie. Major General McKenzie, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Mike. Sir, you and I first met when I was the PMC of the Junior Ranks Mess at Fort York Armory, and you visited our mess. Yeah, hell of a job, PMC, right? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I was scratching my head, and I'm pretty sure that happened just shortly after I took my early retirement in March of 93, because I was racing at the Molson Indy those days, and I spent the night in my motorhome on that little road alley in behind Fort York Armories. I had permission to back my race car trailer and motorhome back up in there, and that's where I spent three nights. So I remember dropping in to the armories itself. So that that seems to be the most logical explanation of our first encounter. I was then a civilian, so I could sort of go anywhere I wanted. 
Right. And I do remember we didn't have a guard of honor or any type of parade to receive you. Suddenly there's a general in our mess. <laughs> well, that's we're not the Americans. I, I frequently show up at functions. And even today, people say, well, where's your car? Where's your driver? And I have to explain, it doesn't work that way in Canada. <laughs> the moment they uh, cut your ID card in half at the orderly room, uh, having taken your release and going on to retirement, there's no longer any staff. There's no longer any car or anything like that. So no, there shouldn't have been a guard. <laughs> Absolutely, sir. Sir, I sent you the questions in advance. Have you had a chance to review the questions? Yeah, like we were discussing, I normally refuse to take questions from the media ahead of time because then you start thinking about your answer and maybe changing. So I work better extemporaneously, but uh, this morning I snuck a look at them and I thought, no, no, I can handle those. Excellent. Please tell me why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces. You know, Mike, it had to do with the Canadian education system where provinces have jurisdiction. They did way back in my day, late 50s, early 60s. And my father was a sergeant major in the combat engineers, and probably the best thing that happened to me in my life, I hate to word it this way, was North Korea invading the South, because my father joined up again to go to Korea. He hoped he didn't get there. And I was in grade six in a one-room schoolhouse in a tiny little village in Nova Scotia with 11 grades in one room, and I was rescued from a very unproductive farm in Nova Scotia, and he was close to the Cholak. So I went from grade six to 10 inclusive in Chilliwack. And then he was posted back to Nova Scotia. So in actual fact, I went from a province that had 13 grades before you graduated from high school to one who only had 12, Nova Scotia. So in my first year of university, if I joined COTC, the Cadet Officer Training Corps, which was primarily for people who were going to be officers in the militia, right. the, queen, the queen would send me all the way back across Canada from Nova Scotia to Chilliwack for my first summer's training as a potential engineer officer. And I would be there for my high school class's graduation. In fact, all the folks I left behind after grade 10 were now graduating, and I'd be there for the graduation. And my girlfriend in grade 10 was now Miss Fraser Valley. So all summer I was known as Miss Fraser Valley and Escort <laughs> as I was taking phase one with the combat engineers. And it was just for one summer. That's all it was. It was just to get a free trip back to British Columbia. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, first phase with the engineers in those days was 100% infantry. They did it as well as the infantry school, which I subsequently commanded when I was commanding combat training center many years later. And I liked it so much. And all of a sudden I saw inside the gate rather than looking at it from outside, liked what I saw. And so transferred from the engineer corps to the infantry. My father referred to it as going slumming. <laughs> Nevertheless, the rest is history. I was a short service commission for five years, and then that was extended. And my one summer in 1958 became, well, as a commissioned officer, 36 years. Well, it's interesting you bring up that your father was a sergeant major in the engineers because I've lost count of how many of my guests yeah. have had that exact same story that their father was a sergeant major in the engineers and then they end up in either the infantry or another trade. 
It just seems to be a recurring theme. It's quite interesting. Yeah, Dad was a QMSI, W01 during World War II, and had a finger blown off in training. That terribly frustrated, never got overseas. And then when he went back in, when Korea broke out, they said, oh, you've done all this instructing. We're going to send you to Chilliwack to be an instructor as a W02, as a sergeant major at that time. And so he missed Korea too. He It really upset him that he didn't get overseas, especially when I think, what, a year and a half after after I was commissioned, I was posted as a reinforcement to Germany. So that really upset him. Right. But I understand his frustration, that's for sure. Now, sir, you're well known for being a member of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and this is their 100th anniversary, but you joined a different unit to start. Yeah, I was in my third phase of officer training, followed by the Young Officers Tactics Course. That took place in those days, not in Gagetown, but it was one of the last years where it happened at Camp Borden, where the combat armed schools were located. And close to the end of that course, in the summer of 1960, a friend of mine who had a Volvo PV544, he was going to be from the ranks, he was a corporal in the Patricias, said he was going to a motor race in Jarvis, Ontario, Harwood Acres, and would I like to go along? And I'd never seen a motor race before, so jumped in, went down there with him for a couple of days. And quite frankly, looking back on it now, it changed my life because I saw something that I didn't know whether I could do or not, but I saw something that excited me, everything from the sound to the smell to the cars themselves. So I went back to St. Avex, where I was about to start my junior year, and quit in order to be commissioned because I was fully qualified militarily and you didn't have to have a degree, they would bring you in direct entry, direct entry officer, and I did that. Little did I know that I lost all seniority for all the training I've taken up until that time as a corporal in the engineer militia and then three summers as an officer cadet. I didn't know that at the time, found out later, unfortunately. (laughs) But all that to say that I was commissioned and then I had no choice where I would go and I was assigned, blessedly, in retrospect, to the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, who were regular force unit at that time before they disappeared under Hellier's helm in 1969-70. And I was posted to Calgary, to the 2nd Battalion of the Queen's Own Rifles, and very quickly, within just over a year, for all the wrong reasons, was posted to Germany to be a reinforcement officer in one Queen's Own. I'd say for all the wrong reasons, because three of us were Dear friends, all second lieutenants, got into some relatively serious trouble, and the commanding officer called us in, World War II vet, landed at Normandy, and said, the careers of you three will be over if I don't separate you. Mackenzie, you're off to Germany. The other individual, you will go with him, and the other one will stay here in Calgary. So I'm splitting up what became known as the Triple M Brewery. We had Menace, Murphy, and McKenzie, all with M's, and we made our own home brew in the bathtub in the officer's quarters. (laughs) Huddled under the supervision of government employees was shut down by the commanding officer. And I was, and still am, a loyal Queen's own, proud Queen's own vet who, in 1969-70 at Staff College, when the Queen's own were reduced to reserve status and one battalion in Toronto, everybody in the Queen's own, and I mean everybody without exception, transferred to the PPCLI because we were, even though both of us started in the East, the Queen's Own in Toronto and the Patricias here in Ottawa, we were the Army of the West. So it was the logical thing. Right. And I must say, the other amalgamation of the Guards and the Black Watch into the RCR, it happened 
but there were some problems in unanimity and becoming a homogeneous regiment. The Patricias just absolutely welcomed us in open arms. Within a year of the amalgamation, all three commanding officers, all three regimental sergeant majors and 10 of 12 company commanders were all ex-Queen's Own Rifles. And one of the companies that wasn't ex-Queen's Own was the Rifles Exchange Officer <laughs> from the Green Jackets in England. So, I mean, we were treated really, really well throughout our entire careers. That's good to hear. What was the world like when you joined, sir? It was an interesting period. I mean, some people would refer to it as the height of the Cold War. Although it was a couple of years later when, in fact, I arrived on the very first day I arrived on, on what we affectionately called the jockstrapping course in England, the British Army School of Advanced Physical Training, was the imposition of the blockade around Cuba by Kennedy during the missile crisis in October of 62. But obviously that hadn't happened when I was commissioned in September of 1960. Gary Power had been shot down, the U-2 spy plane. As a result of that, Khrushchev actually canceled. There was a peace summit between the U.S. and Russia scheduled for Paris. That was canceled. A lot more advisors, I think somewhere around a thousand probably American advisors located in Vietnam. That's all they were at the time, advisors. Right. And so there was a lot of tension, but I don't know, I hate to admit, wasn't paying much attention to that, <laughs> even to the that within a year or two, when the American buildup in Vietnam started, a lot of us, including my two buddies with their names starting with them, we all, we all considered going to the States and joining the American Army. I mean, at that age, the type of people we were recruiting, trained by World War II vets, it really didn't look at the geopolitics of what was going on. I mean, there was a war on, so let's get our ass down there and join up and deploy. <laughs> The moment we discovered that, it, in fact, to be a second lieutenant or a platoon commander, you would have to be an American citizen, and that's still the case today. You would have to join as a private soldier and start again. The odds are pretty good that within a year or two, you'd be commissioned based on your background. But we then looked, if you can believe it, to Soldier Magazine, and the Southern Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland were hiring police officers from people who had some military background. So we wow. thought about that, too. And then all hell broke loose with the commanding officer telling us he was splitting this up. And in my case, Germany, hey, that's a pretty good solution. So <laughs> I, I stayed in. I wasn't going to go anywhere other than to reinforce our battalion in Germany because a couple of years in Germany was going to be a real boondoggle. Absolutely. I had a good time in Germany myself. Can you believe it? When I arrived, 4.3 marks to the dollar. Now, I was only clearing about 213 bucks a month, but nevertheless, it went a long way. And I was buying a Austin Healey and ordered it. It was $2,200, brand new Austin Healey, Mark II. And I'm walking out to the front of the camp to catch the bus to go downtown Easterloan and pick up the car. And, and another, my new commanding officer also went ashore at Normandy. Hank Elliott, rest his soul, came up and said, uh, Lou, they just devalued the dollar. And I was uh, way too embarrassed. I didn't know what that meant. I had the faintest idea until I went to pick up the car and my check was insufficient. I owed another couple of hundred bucks on top of the 2200 which was like a month's pay. Right. But it, you could sure do a lot of damage on $200 a month in Germany in 1960. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I remember the Reg Force soldiers I was training with in Germany used to watch the value of the dollar on the day before payday and hope that yeah. <laughs> the disparity would be enough. It would make a difference at home. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a very big deal. 
I forget what it was like in my last tour over there before I went off to Italy to the NATO Defense College, 1976, yeah, late 6, uh, 76, 77, I think it was like 2.1 or something like that. The fact is we had gas coupons, so gas was like three cents a liter or something <laughs> like that. In fact, the money got you into so much trouble that we worked Saturday mornings. That was the theory of the leadership of the day, that if we keep these guys busy six and a half days a week and work until noon on Saturday, then they won't have time to drive to Amsterdam and a whole bunch of other sin cities uh, to get in trouble. What it meant was we just drove faster, that's all. It was like a bloody riot as people, I mean, battalions were 950 soldiers, out, right. of which the vast majority were single. So off we would go in waves to Cologne or Dusseldorf or Amsterdam or whatever. What were you like when you joined, sir? You talked a bit about what you were like as a young second lieutenant, but what happened before that? Well, I was, I don't know whether obsessed is the right term or not, but I was very much oriented towards sport. And like any other 20-year-old, the opposite sex. But sport was very, very important. I had no idea at the time that it would actually be a career enhancer because when I was commissioned into Calgary, then almost immediately I was double-hatted as platoon commander and the sports officer. And I was pretty good at that. We won a number of brigade championships, which were just so important those days. I mean, the amount of time, especially in Germany, that units would prepare for a one-day track and field meet, brigade track and field meet. I mean, I commanded, when I went to Germany a year and a half later, the sports company, which was about 140 individuals that were the outstanding athletes in the battalion. And they would, they would do their day job, but they'd only spend about three hours a day doing it. Everything else was training for either basketball, hockey, track and field, or whatever. And in a wise move by the commanding officer, we would be the enemy on all major exercises. And we just ran rings around the battalion because you had 140 of the fittest guys in the battalion. <laughs> I mean, it, the Brits are known for cross-country running. Our cross-country team was so good, coached by Tom Eagle, who regrettably passed away two years ago, a sergeant who lost the election for the commissioner of the Northwest Territories by one vote about 12 years ago. Tom trained the team so well that at the British Army of the Rhine cross-country championships, the Queen's Own Rifles team finished, went to the shower, we're talking about fast now, went to the shower, dressed in the regimental tie, jacket, and blue blazers, and was at the finish line to welcome all other competitors when they came across. I mean, <laughs> they did that in about six or seven minutes. Right. But nevertheless, you talk about a dominating performance. <laughs> Sports... Yeah, that that was my uh, that was my number one activity priority. That's what I thought about when my head hit the pillow at night. What happened subsequently that had a big impact on my career is, you know, in the army, you do something for two or three years, and then people decide you need a course <laughs> on the same thing. So I'm in Germany, having been a sports officer for two and a half years, a year in Canada, a year and a half in Germany, and uh, I'm sent on the advanced physical training athletic course at the British School of Physical Training, which still exists in Aldershot. Arrived on the day of Kennedy imposing the blockade on Cuba, but nevertheless, at the end of that two and a half month course, I received, and I'm told it still is, the highest mark ever achieved in the 150 year history of the course, just because it happened to be all the sports that I was fairly good at, whether it was basketball and I played on the British Army team or rugby or wrestling or boxing or anything like that. So that shouldn't have 
made a big impact in my career. But while that was happening, just after I got posted back to my battalion in Germany, the Queen's Own, the commander in UNIF, United Nations Emergency Force 1 in Rafa in the Sinai, or the Gaza Strip, right. Colonel Rochester, rest his soul, who became commander of the Airborne Regiment, the first commander of the Airborne Regiment, Colonel Rochester is pissed off because he's got 1,200 folks under his command, Canadians, and they hadn't won any sports championships, European handball, volleyball, basketball, soccer, anything, in the entire time the force had been there since 1958. <laughs> so he wrote Ottawa, and a letter arrived in the in-basket, I discovered later, many years later in my career, of a captain in the personnel shop. And he said, I will give up my legal officer. For God's sake, send me a sports officer. Well, two folios later, so I'm told, a file arrived in this captain's in-basket of Mackenzie getting this high rating on a course in England and said, do I have a solution for you, Colonel Rochester? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and normally you did at least four years as a platoon commander, out of nowhere, I'm posted to UNEF. Now, I can tell you with a smile on my face, there wasn't one individual that I ran into in one Queen's Own, including the commanding officer that knew what UNEF stood for, <laughs> the United Nations Emergency Force. There was all kinds of speculation as to what it, what it stood for. So I jump on a train. I go to Pisa, Italy. I jump on a, another plane, a North Star, that flies me into Ellerish, And bang, here I am in the middle of a United Nations Emergency Force Canadian contingent responsible for sports, morale, and ADC to Colonel Rochester. Hmm. People still shaking their heads wondering, where the hell is he going? <laughs> And then I'm there. It's a one-year posting. No home leave in those days, but it's a one-year posting, and I'm there about two weeks. And Colonel Rochester said to me, and funnily enough, Colonel Rochester was the sports officer during the war in Petawawa, and my father was the equivalent of the RSM there at the same time. So he actually knew my father. Wow. Anyway, he turned to me and said, Lou, I just got a one-year extension. Would you agree to stay with me? Well, I mean, I'm the junior officer in the entire camp. And this is the commander, Colonel Rochester, so you're not going to say no. That's right. <laughs> so I said yes. And when that first plane left with people that had arrived after me and they'd completed their one-year tour and I was still there, I, I knew I had made a serious error. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but nevertheless, but it started a career of, we need somebody to go and do X, Y, and Z. Oh, Mackenzie, he's got a lot of UN experience. <laughs> you know, the UN experience was a sports officer, for God's sake. That's right. But it was the start of a reputation that I had this expertise in UN peacekeeping. And so that's why I ended up doing a multitude of tours. That just opened the door, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sir, what's your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Well, for me... There's really no hesitation because as far as experience goes, it really has to be my time in Sarajevo. It, it wasn't destined to be when I went through an interesting sort of series of events that ended up having me go there. Because I, I just came in 90 from commanding a UN mission in Central America that had originally demobilized the Contras. And... We had a significant Canadian contingent there and nine or ten other countries, and we had a helicopter unit, etc. So I had, quote, commanded a UN mission, unquote, and that means you don't go on UN duty again. Right. So when, when the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe were looking, and the EC, were looking for unarmed observer, uh, an unarmed observer mission, 
then I volunteered for it. And that was turned down at the time. And then the UN got involved. And the UN was going to send in a very large force of about 14,000 and turn to Canada to provide a chief of staff. And my very dear friend, when I was a battalion commander, he was one of my company commanders, Ray Crabb, who retired as a three-star. Ray Crabb was posted to fill that position. Then the UN discovered that Canada, not Ray, Canada had screwed up and said he had just recently been on UN duty in Cyprus, when in actual fact it had been 14 years earlier when he was a lieutenant. And so when the UN discovered that, they refused to accept him. Hmm. And Canada had a choice of either saying, screw you, take him, or we're not filling the position. But we had the largest contingent on its way. We had the engineer regiment from Germany, and the Van Dues had been organized, along with a company of the RCR, to form the battle group. So Canada said, my God. We... And so the UN said, send us Mackenzie, only because they knew me from a previous command. Right. And they were prepared to overlook the rule that once you command a unit, you can't go and participate in another mission. So I'm posted there as the chief of staff. And I go to New York. I saw the problem. I saw the other five generals, none of whom had ever been on UN peacekeeping duty. So, I mean, we defend democracy in the military. We don't practice it, but it's different in the UN. I was appointed the spokesman to brief the Security Council on because I had UN experience. And my objective, I'm ashamed to say, was to get out of the chief of staff's job as quickly as I possibly could and get some, I don't know whether you want to call it frontline, but at least operational appointment. Certainly. And little did I know that that would happen so quickly as the situation, well, the war broke out about a week and a half after we got there on the 6th of April, 1992. And I became the interlocutor between the Bosnian Serbs a few of the Croats, but not a lot, and the Bosnian Muslims. And it just sort of evolved from there to the point that we were a headquarters against my recommendation that they not put our headquarters in Sarajevo because I knew we'd become a lightning rod for all the problems in Bosnia. And unfortunately, we were right because two weeks later, the war broke out. And then we're a headquarters 300 kilometers from our troops from 31 different nations that are mostly up in Croatia, close to the border with Serbia. It's the first time in military history that the troops in the front lines, way up there, were feeling sorry for their headquarters, because <laughs> we were the ones that were being shelled and attacked on a regular basis. Right. So the UN ordered us out and told us to go to Belgrade. And we were so embarrassed. I mean, can you imagine being called the United Nations Protection Force? And as soon as the fighting breaks out, you hightail it with your tail between your legs, followed by the media, right. up to Belgrade. So we, more than anything, we wanted to go back to Sarajevo and try and help out on a humanitarian basis, if nothing else. And that's when a, an agreement was brokered by Cedric Thornberry, our political representative, down in Sarajevo for us, the UN, to take over the airport and bring in humanitarian aid. This is now the unethical bit of my recollection. There's nothing I'm proud of, but I would have done it. I'd do it again. I turned to the commander, Satish Nambiar, the number one rated three-star general in the Indian Army, finest gentleman I've ever worked with and for, and I said, you know, there's going to have to be a battalion to protect the airfield. He said, yes, and the UN said they're going to provide it to us. And I said, yeah, it'll be over 30 days getting here, and by that time, the window of opportunity will have closed. So you need a battalion now. And right now, your Canadian battalion up in Croatia is the most underutilized battalion in your command. 
and you should ask for permission to use the Canadian battalion. He said, well, yeah, I'll do that. Do up the message to New York. And I said, well, I got to tell you, as a Canadian, knowing how the Canadian government works, you're not going to get that battalion next week unless there's a Canadian in charge. And I'm the only one qualified right here in your office. He said, no, no, you're my chief of staff. There's no way. I'm... I said, well, okay, let me phone Ottawa and find out. So I go, I go back in my office or my temporary office and put my feet up on the desk. And I'd, I'd been smoking for about a month and a half at that stage. I only did for the six months I was in Bosnia. I pulled out a cigarette, had the cigarette, didn't phone anybody, walked back into the office and said, I'm sorry, Satish. Canada says, yeah, good chance to have the battalion. They have to go to cabinet, but I've got to be in command. He said, ah, sh-. And I said, well, take it or leave it. And he said, okay, okay. Find me a deputy to take over your job and you can have the command. So that's how I snookered my way in to the back door of getting away from staff work, which I hate, (laughs) and ended up going to Sarajevo. And thankfully, the Canadian Battle Group came to me for 30 days and performed just so absolutely outstandingly. And I guess probably that was the best experience that I had in my military career because it really it really could have turned into a disaster. But my appreciation, fortunately, was accurate as opposed to those who have condemned me, like Karoloff and people like that in the media that said I was inviting Canadians in where they were killed, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no Canadian was killed in Sarajevo for the entire UN operation over there. And during the 30 days that I brought Canadian troops to Sarajevo in the summer of 1992, one corporal, great Newfoundland soldier, had his foot blown off. That was the only serious injury. So that was a testament to their training and their ability to operate like a goldfish in a bowl, avoiding all the obstacles and doing good work at the same time. So while I was vilified by one side in particular, the Canadian troops weren't. They were highly respected and admired uh, in the city of Sarajevo and its surrounding areas. So a long-winded way to say that was that was certainly the most exciting period of my military career. Right. It always causes me to shake my head every time I think that Sarajevo was the site of the Winter Olympics, and then within a short span of years, it becomes a war zone and bullet-ridden buildings and everything of that nature. It just Yeah, I had a lot of meetings in some of the Olympic uh, infrastructure, especially with the Serbs, because they were Bosnian Serbs are up in Palais, very close to the ski jumping. It's interesting that you say that, because Ken Reed, our well-known crazy Canuck, uh, about two years after I came back, and I was out, it was 94, 94 and a half. I was in Calgary at the University of Calgary giving a presentation and he attended and he came up afterwards and said to me, we all felt something when we went downtown Sarajevo at the end of our events each day. There were certainly as much as it's advertised as it was advertised as the Vienna of tolerance and understanding. He said, we felt tension in the bars or wherever where there were groups of people in various corners, you know, maybe sniping at each other, Hmm. Uh, literally, uh, verbally, I should say, uh, not literally. So it of all the wars I've been involved with, uh, monitoring or whatever, it's always fear, fear for your family that starts it. And once you have good propaganda, and there was really good propaganda, then you say to yourself, how do I look after my family? And if that means killing your neighbor, because your neighbor's going to kill you if you don't do it first, that's very simplistic, but it was a characteristic that was somewhat prevalent there. That's why all this ethnic cleansing, in fact, was no different 
than World War II, World War One, or whatever, that when you your front line moves forward and you commit some atrocities or even are accused of some atrocities and the population moves in front of you to try and get away from your advance. That happened in spades in the Balkans, unfortunately, which was tragic because my number one interlocutor with the Bosnian Serbs was Nikola Kolyevich, who had taught at the University of Western Ontario, taught at Harvard, Shakespearean scholar. When I took him with me, back into the Bosnian Muslim side. On the Bosnian Muslim side, people would see him break out in tears, hug him, and they talk about their days in the university up to like four months earlier or something like that. I mean, it was a very, very emotional connection between them. But yet on the ground, in the front lines, they were eliminating each other. Right. Wow. Sir, who was your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? You already spoke about your two brewmasters, but anyhow. Yeah, it would be two different people. Certainly the greatest influence and whom I owe a lot is Lieutenant General retired Charlie Belzio, who, who didn't command the army for two years. He commanded the army for two years and another year and another hmm. year and another year. He kept getting extended because right. he and the CDS had had a, a pissing contest over a couple of years when they were in Germany and Charlie was the brigade commander in Germany in the mid 70s and the individual that was commanding the air group at the time rest his soul Jerry Terrio commanded like I said the air group and therefore they were coming together quite frequently in front of me as a scribe because I was the executive assistant to the commander of the Canadian forces of Europe at the time and so I watched the tension between the two and when Jerry Terrio became chief of the defense staff to exaggerate to make the point because everyone says he he made a comment don't let Belzeal inside the Ottawa city limits <laughs> because Charlie was in his headquarters at mobile command headquarters and did that for five years but he was a company commander in the Queen's Own Rifles in Victoria when I returned from the Gaza Strip and had specifically asked for me to command a platoon in the first amphibious exercise on the west coast of Canada since World War II. And you'd get a kick out of this, Mike, because the amphibious exercise was to load on the Navy ship, go up the west coast of Vancouver Island, and then wait for it, row ashore <laughs> in a couple of whalers, row ashore and land on the shore and then walk across the entire Vancouver Island to the other side where we'd be picked up by another naval ship. I don't know who the hell thought of that, but nevertheless, we did it. And I saw a guy that as a young major, and in those days, very, very unusual, francophone, in an Anglophone regiment commanding a company that knew over the years I, I was with Charlie talking to soldiers, junior NCOs, senior NCOs, or the Queen. Right. <laughs> Equally relaxed and comfortable and confident. And I, I had no idea it was having an impact on me at the time, but in retrospect, it did, all the way up to and including three-star general command in the Army. And when I came out of the United States Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, as a fresh brand new colonel. I was posted as director of infantry in Ottawa and General Belzile heard about that, phoned me and said, I'm saving your career. <laughs> Sir, what What do you mean? He said, well, the general you're going to work for there, you and he will be like oil and water. I'm bringing you to my headquarters and you're going to be the chief of staff of training for the Canadian Army. So I said, yep, yes, sir. <laughs> Off I went and that's the job I did. So he had a habit of, uh, in the United States, you'd call it a mentor. He had a habit of keeping an eye on me and keeping me out of trouble. So as far as influence, yeah. 
I've always felt relaxed from my 45 minutes I spent with Her Majesty to briefing NATO ambassadors or the British House of Commons Defence Committee and all that stuff I did when I came back over the Balkans. So he was he was the example that I followed. Now, as far as impressive goes, I have to say President Mitterrand, and I know a lot of people are not keen on Mitterrand. wasn't It wasn't what he did by coming to Sarajevo and being a tremendous catalyst for opening the airport and totally snookering all the other European community, as they were known then, leaders. Uh, when he left Lisbon and told them all he was flying back to the Elise, when in actual fact he flew in to see us in Sarajevo unannounced. That wasn't the impressive part, although that took balls. It was no doubt about <laughs> But the impressive part was when I was doing a documentary on my experiences a year and a half, two years after I took my release, A Soldier's Peace, P-E-A-C-E, and we went to the Elysee. This is in like 18 days before he died of cancer. Right. And I'm told I was the first ever to be invited into the makeup room while he was being made up for this one-hour interview he was going to give me and my team. And, I mean, you you could see his skeleton, his skull skeleton through his skin. It was so translucent and uh, really, really just on this side of death. We went in and sat down. I'm not fluently bilingual. We had the simultaneous translation coming from translators that were outside the room coming into our earpiece. The most difficult thing I've ever done because it's easy to answer questions like you're asking me now. What's difficult is asking the question. And in about the third minute of a one-hour interview, I got the answer that I knew we needed for the documentary. Right. And I had to carry on for another 57 minutes, <laughs> which I did. And then I thanked him very much and went to stand up. And he just took his hand and sort of waved me down, palm down, as if, no, no, sit down. And then he went on for seven or eight minutes saying how confident he was with his French soldiers under my command, how great respect he had for Canadian soldiers and the work they'd done. I mean, it was really quite an emotional moment. I didn't realize how much until within two weeks he passed away. Right. Just, just to have the fortitude to even not cancel the interview, I was mightily impressed. Certainly. Sir, we're up to the last question now. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome? Well, I don't want to get overly dramatic, but I'm still over, <laughs> I'm still overcoming it uh, on behalf of my family, too. I appeared for the first time a Canadian officer, and I appeared a number of times in front of U.S. congressional committees, both House of Representatives, Senate, and the combined, and asked all about the Balkans. One time it was quite humorous, actually, because Senator Sam Nunn said, the 1994 or three or four, he said, John McKenzie, what would you recommend no, it must have been uh, 93 because I was still in uniform. What would you recommend to the president we do in the Balkans? I turned my left shoulder towards him and showed my Canadian flag and said, sir, I, I would have no advice for your president. Uh, I'm a Canadian. He said, well, consider yourself an American for 10 minutes and tell us what you'd say. <laughs> so I'd been told to make sure I was expressing my personal opinion. That's what Prime Minister Mulroney had told me. And so I, I did tell him. And one of the things I told him was, do not touch the Balkans with a 10-foot pole. You will be sucked in and you will be bogged down. Little did I know that Clinton said, well, I'll go a year or so later and, and Americans are still there. So I guess I was probably right. But nevertheless, <laughs> the Bosnian Muslims were highly pissed off at me saying that because they wanted, and there was some propaganda around at the time, they wanted the U.S. cavalry to come over the hill and rescue Sarajevo and, and the rest of their territory, Bosnia. And so immediately, within 24 hours, 
all of a sudden I'm being accused of going to a Contiki was the name of a place in northern Sarajevo, picking up Muslim girls who were there as prisoners and taking them away where obviously uh, they were raped and their bodies left in front of my headquarters. So the only good news of all of that is that the time I did that, according to the accusations of the propaganda, professional propaganda, I won't name the North American-based company that orchestrated a lot of this for the Bosnian government, I allegedly did this somewhere around mid-August. And the good news was I'd left in the last week of July. (laughs) So when I asked the UN to do a thorough investigation, which they did, quite extensive investigation, they found I wasn't even in the theater when these things happened. But nevertheless, I don't have to tell you, that was out in the ether even back then. It's still out there. It's still enhanced, enlarged, exaggerated, with some of it coming from people in my own country here in Montreal, Ottawa, that are involved with association of the people in Sarajevo that started this. It took a while to get used to that. It's water off my back now, but the fact is that it's my wife and daughter still my wife has the ability to defend herself. I won't go any further than that at home. And I never thought that would have to be the case later in my career. But in 1992 or three, when I got out, I was the only, I didn't know that at the time, the only civilian in Canada to be authorized to carry a weapon for personal protection. Hmm, wow. All because of this crap that's still floating around. Now, I've had three lawyers come to me and they said, we can shut these guys down. We can sue, we can do whatever. But these days, uh, as you well know, that doesn't take it off the internet. No, it doesn't. You're right. Once it's out there, I mean, just go onto the internet and put Lewis McKenzie rapist and see what you get. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, so all you do is give it a profile because when I mention it to a lot of people, even today during presentations or whatever, when I'm asked, they say, gee, we didn't know about that. So you don't want to give it more profile than it deserves. But that, that's something that, uh, yeah, we've, the family has overcome and we've learned to live with it. Well, it's surprising because when I was preparing for this interview, I did do a Google search on you to make sure I had my Mm -hmm. facts correct, and that did come up. And I just dismissed it as something that wasn't possible. I didn't even read the article, but I did see the search criteria come up, and I was completely uninterested (laughs) in opening that. Yeah, well, and and it it took on a life of its own in Germany, ironically, because Germany was very much responsible, one of the primary responsibilities for starting the conflict in the Balkans because of their recognition of Croatia, their World War II allies, as an independent nation. And also some areas of Italy that were pro the other side in World War II. It's been repeated there any number of times. So, yeah, and even in the U.S. Senate, came up a couple of times and I kept wanting them to investigate it. I even agreed that one of my appearances on the Larry King show, there were some callers that came in and brought these accusations up. And I said, that's great. I mean, just let you say there's a tape. And so let's bring the tape to Larry King. I'm sure he'd like to, to see it. Well, the tape disappeared. They didn't, weren't quite sure where it was. I actually think I know the genesis of the picture and or the tape. As I was leaving, what, what happened about two months before I left, or maybe three, when we were pulled out of Sarajevo, if you can believe it, we have a whole bunch of local employees working in my headquarters. Those employees are immediately tainted because they work for the UN. That's right. All three sides. 
And I said to the UN, you're pulling us out. I'm taking these employees with me. Uh, some of them are single mothers with children, and we allow them to bring their children here to the headquarters. And the UN gave me a direct order not to do that. I said, no, you mustn't. So I called all of them together and asked them if they wanted to go to Belgrade with me. And 80-some percent that didn't have families there downtown said yes. So I took them. And once again, defying the UN, but knowing you were doing the right thing and the UN would have a hard time condemning you for it in the media. And I got away with it. <laughs> and so when I went back for the second time and I was leaving because I was now fired, I mean, I was told to report to MBR because I think the statement that brought an end to my tour there was if I could stop each side from shelling their own people for CNN and blaming it on the other side, then maybe I could have a ceasefire around here. Well, the translation was not shelling their own people, but killing their own people. That's what went out to the international media. So I'm told, report to Satish Nambir. Satish, God bless him, called me and said, you've got to come to me for consultation in Zagreb. And I said, do I have to bring all my kit? And he said, yes, I'm afraid so. So I knew I wasn't back. <laughs> so I refused that order, but he agreed with me. I said, you know, I haven't visited the Canadian engineers, the combat engineers yet. Let me visit the combat engineers. Then I'll come back to Sarajevo and I'll shake the hands of the crew and the last APC leaving the Sarajevo airport as the Canadians go back to Croatia. And he said, that's fine. And so these probably five, five or six of these girls that I'd taken, secretaries that I'd taken to Belgrade and then brought back, wanted to come and see me to say goodbye in my office. They brought me a small gift. And I stood in the middle, put my arms around them, and they were all crying, and a picture was taken. And I'm told by subsequent people who served over there, Canadians, that that picture was circulated around Sarajevo as these girls just before I killed them. Oh. And that part of the propaganda. And the really bizarre part is I went back a year later as a civilian doing a documentary. Four of them came to see me. They heard I was back incognito. I don't know how they found out. My old headquarters, Michael Rose, Sir Michael Rose had invited me over to their headquarters. And I said, sarcastic, you girls are supposed to be dead. And they said, oh, you didn't believe that. That's just all rumors around Sarajevo. I didn't say, yeah, but it's a rumor around the world. Right. A number of people believe it. But anyway, it was, it was good to see them alive and well. Certainly. Well, sir, we've come to the end of the four questions. What's new or what's upcoming? Well, the big project right now is we have a Canadian, came from Italy when he was four years old, became a very successful businessman in Toronto, just about, I don't know, 40, 50% of everything you buy in the grocery store today, he does the packaging for. And he went back to his hometown three years ago. And there was a cemetery very close to his hometown. And he walked through the gate, and the first tombstone that he saw was a 17-year-old Canadian soldier that had been buried there after a lead-up to Ortona. And he came back to Canada and said, I'm giving something back. This country has given so much to me that I'm giving something back. And I think other new well-off Canadians will join me. And so he did a feasibility study at great expense to himself. He had it done professionally over six months for something we now call, and it's trademarked, the Never Forgotten National Memorial. If you think of Vimy Ridge and Canada bereft, which is the image of the lady statue looking down in sorrow with her hands beside her sides. Think of, and we have the permission of the family and the sculptor to do this, think of her with her head uplifted looking out to sea, line of sight from the Cape Breton Trail to Vimy Ridge with her arms outstretched. 
welcoming home the 114,733 Canadian service personnel buried in 2,500, I had no idea there were that many, Commonwealth cemeteries around the world or at sea, welcoming them home. Because as you know, we only started bringing our fallen home in 1974-75. Right. This will be 80 feet high on an unbelievably beautiful point in a cove on the Cabot Trail. Why there? Because the odds are very good that as Canadian soldiers, World War One and World War Two sailed to Europe or fortunately came home, this would be one of the last bits of Canadian soil that they would have seen. If you want to know why it's 80 feet rather than the original intent was 84, once you go over 80, you have to have a flashing red light on the top. Oh, he said, no frigging way. And so we're deep in the midst of planning with the government. We have Environment, which is Parks Canada, Heritage, DVA, and DND all cooperating, which has to be a record. <laughs> it's a private initiative. And so I'm the ambassador for the project, along with my good friend, Colonel Alan Pellerand, on the Francophone side, uh, retired. And we have to raise 30 million bucks. That means we have to get very, very busy in fundraising because the intent, this will be unveiled According to Tony, the originator of the concept, Canada Day 2017. Right, of course. However, he will be talked out of that by me and many others because you can imagine this will be a quite a unique in the world statue. It will generate a lot of attention, jumbotrons across the country showing the unveiling, members of the royal family probably. And if you do that on Canada Day, all of those people I've mentioned should probably be in Ottawa not on some obscure point at the time in Cape Breton. We very much, the planning committee, we, we want our own day. It could be Remembrance Day, although you can make a similar argument, but we need a day for unveiling this. will be an unbelievably iconic monument. All you have to do, the website, probably another month before it's finished. But if you just Google Never Forgotten National Memorial, you'll see a picture of Mother Canada. That's the trademark name we have for and you'll be blown away. It is just absolutely beautiful. What will happen in the future, 30 days before Canada Day, after 2017, soil from 10 of the cemeteries, of the 2,500 cemeteries, with soldiers' DNA, our soldiers' DNA, will be brought to the West Coast and come by train, road, plane, whatever, across the country to be at the base of the monument where there's a large memorial garden, and that soil will be interned there on Canada Day every year forever. Right. So it's a thought having just done Vimy or the Juno Beach and, and then the last year and a half raising money for the PPCLI, our 100th anniversary. They're both to arrive here in Ottawa in a week and a half's time. I thought that was it for fundraising, but this was just such a worthwhile project and it's going to be an iconic. It'll be as recognizable as the Sydney Opera House or, or the Statue of Liberty if it's got done properly. Absolutely. Well, I'll definitely post a link to that project on my website for sure. Great. And if I can propose a date for you, perhaps October 3rd would be a good date because that's the date of the sailing of the first vessel for World War I. Ah, October 3rd. I'm coming right off the top of my head, so hopefully my memory isn't foggy or I'm not misinterpreting, but I do believe it's October 3rd. Well, I'm going to write that down, so let me know by email if you correct that. <laughs> Certainly, I will. No, that's, that's a good suggestion because it gives us a little bit more time to get it finished, too. You know, we need every day that's going to be required just because of the bureaucratic speed bumps that we have to negotiate. 
So you'll still have the 150th anniversary of Canada. It'll still be within that year, and then it'll fit the actual reason for placing it there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's, uh, it's it's an excellent idea, which I have already recorded. <laughs> no, well, that's great, Mike. appreciate the project, not doing me, but just the project of getting a lot of these folks' memories as part of the future record. Absolutely, sir. Well, this is the part of where I give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. So is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Well, I didn't call a second book I wrote, and this is far from the pitch, uh, because I got paid to write it. I, I don't get a commission on sales. I didn't call it Soldiers Made Me Look Good for Nothing. And I'm amazed that the editor and his committee, they spent a couple of hours saying, surely there's something better than that. And then they came back to me and said, no, for the, one of the few times the author has actually picked the title of his book, normally we change it. So I'm eternally grateful Primarily, sure, for Canadian soldiers, but the fact is that soldiers from, I added it up the other day, over 45 other countries, and sometimes there's only one or two, but other times there were three or 400 that worked with me over my career that, as I said many times, if one of them had a screwed up big time, you wouldn't be interviewing me, and <laughs> I wouldn't have been interviewed two days ago about Ukraine or ISIL or whatever. My reputation would be mud, so I owe a hell of a lot to a whole bunch of really, really good soldiers, of which I hope I was as a young 20-year-old, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> well, thank you very much, sir, for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I know this is a very busy time for you with the 100th anniversary of the PPCLI and Army Week kicking off in Ottawa. Thanks again for being a guest on the show. Not at all. My pleasure, Mike. You bet, sir. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike LaCroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike LaCroix Production.